Good morning. We're looking at um, Jesus' parables. A parable is a story with a twist, a twist which reveals something about God. And today we're going to look at the parable of the sower. Begins, again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seeds, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. At this time, Jesus' popularity was skyrocketing, and the crowd has reached a crescendo. Jesus had to enter a boat so that people could, aligning along the shore, could both see him and hear him. And in the midst of apparent fruitfulness with all kinds of people listening, um, Jesus tells a story about what inhibits fruitfulness, what gets in the way of hearing and bearing fruit. It seems strange that he would talk about unresponsiveness when there was so much evidence of responsiveness. He had to move out to the lake because there were so many people listening, and yet he did. And I guess it leads to a question, why the glasses half-empty analysis? Why would he do that? He pulls his disciples aside, and I think he gives us an explanation. Here's what he says. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him, about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. If that passage doesn't cause you to scrunch your forehead, then you're not reading the passage. What it says is kind of disturbing. Jesus then was aware that his teaching was supposed to be enigmatic. Enigmatic means that it's not very clear. You could hear it and not hear it. In fact, that's what parables are. Parables are like riddles. And you can get the story but not get the point of the story. And that's why Jesus spoke in parables, that some would walk away, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, and some could walk away, oh my, holy smoke, I know what he was saying. Um, the implications for what Jesus says here, again, are hard to accept. He seems to indicate that God will, and I'm choosing my words carefully, God will open the eyes of some and close the eyes of others. 
um, God will harden the hearts of most and open the hearts of some. Interestingly, among this group that are listening to this parable, there is one who was listening but really didn't hear. He could tell the story, but he really couldn't understand what the story was about. Um, there was one among them, if we plug in this thing, was not good soil. Judas Iscariot. If, there's, if it would be possible to do spiritual autopsies, if you could get people who have passed away and kind of do an autopsy spiritually to figure out how in the world did this person hear what they heard, saw what they saw, and, and never come to life spiritually, if that was possible to do spiritual autopsies, I dare say the number one requested cadaver would be Judas Iscariot. How in the world do you spend three years with Jesus and not internalize what he said? How do you see all those things and hear all those things? And yet at some point, it doesn't really enter and bear fruit. How in the world does that happen? Um, it says Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe him and who would betray him. Um, I, Jesus knew from the beginning, but here's a question. How did he know? What tipped him off? You know, Judas had questionable characteristics. Is, was it that? Did he see that he was? Let's, let's try to answer that question. Uh, to do that, we just a little bit of geography, very little, very little geography. Um, the northern part of Israel, again, the nation of Israel, the northern section was called the house of Israel, which is kind of confusing because Israel, the northern part is the house of Israel, but that's the section is called, and the southern section is called the house of Judah. So the house of Israel in the north, the house of Judah in the south. Both of these houses, both of these parts of the nation endured very, very difficult captivities about 800 years prior to Jesus coming around. The northern one especially, um, they suffered at the hands of the Assyrians, and the Assyrians, what they would do, they would try to eliminate the culture of people they conquered. And the way they would do that is they would immigrate all kinds of people into the country that they had conquered, and so dilute the culture that the people could no longer talk about themselves as we are members of this state because so many people were brought in that the distinctiveness was gone. They kind of got deluded with everyone else. That's what happened to the house of Israel. Um, the, that part in the north was called the house of Israel. It was also called this, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, if you were a Jew, the world is divided into two kinds of people. There are Jews, and then there were everyone else, and everyone else are Gentiles. So it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because there were Jewish Gentiles had been inserted that it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And uh, these, the 
less devoted than their southern neighbors. Those in the south, their captivity did not erase their identity. And they came away from their captivity in Babylon, still being practicing Jews who had a unique identity, but not the ones. Great. Um, okay, yeah, as I was saying, I know that you've been puzzling and really trying to figure out what I'm pointing out here. It's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Um, the northerners are called Galileans, and all the disciples are Galileans except one, Judas Iscariot. Um, he was the only one from the south of Israel, and um, this name, Judas Iscariot, it it's probably means Judas Ish Karioth. Ish is Jewish Hebrew for man. Karioth is talking about a city about five or ten miles from Jerusalem, the city of Karioth. So Judas is the man from Karioth. He's the only guy who originally came from the southern part of the kingdom where they were pretty proud of their spirituality. They weren't from the Galilee of the Gentiles. There is a place in the Bible that I think Jesus was probably aware of, and I think that this might have been how he knew who it was who was going to betray him. He knew somebody was going to betray him, and this might be why he knew. Here's what Isaiah said. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people, people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's in the house of Israel. That's in the north among Galilee of the Gentiles. And you know what Jesus was aware because Isaiah had prophesied that when the light would come in the future, when the Messiah would come, the light would shine on not the south, but the north. The ones who thought that they were spiritual also rans. They weren't as devout, but God would introduce himself to and through those who were from Galilee of the Gentiles. And perhaps that's, I, I can make a good bet. As Jesus looked around to the disciples, Galilean, 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 Judean, and he knew that that was, he was the one. It, it was it was hard to break free from the influence of families and Pharisees. Um, Paul talks about this. He said this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Here's what Paul understood. Again, this feels kind of confusing, but it does give us a rationale. Why would Jesus speak in parables when some people wouldn't understand? Most wouldn't understand, and a few would. Most would be hardened. Why would God do something like that? And what Paul understood is this. God hardened the minds of most Jews at the time. It was not God's purpose that most Jews would believe in him. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? 
What ended up happening, most Jews in the South didn't believe in him. Some Galileans in the North did. And here's what ended up happening. The Judeans from the South made it illegal to believe in Jesus. So then they took those Galileans in the North who believed and they thrust them out of the country. And guess where they sent them to? Into the Roman Empire, where other Gentiles lived. And because God did that, we have something to talk about this morning. Had that not happened, it would have remained a religion for Israel, and we would have no idea what happened. So when God hardens the hearts of some, what he's doing He's purposefully blinding some in Israel at the time so that they would react against those who did see, push them out, and we would have then, 2,000 years later, we would be able to hear words that God sent to the earth and we could understand him. I think that's what happens. In fact, it's interesting. God scatters his children. The word scatter And so if you were a Galilean in the first century, you weren't allowed to go into the synagogue if you were a Christian. And that's kind of where everything happened. That's where your friends were. That's where you went to school. That's where you got to meet other people. You did business in the synagogue. And if you were a Jewish Christian, there came a time where you weren't welcome in the synagogue. And what would happen then, they ended up being thrust out of the city. Imagine you being thrust out of Israel and you leave behind your neighborhood and your livelihood, all your friends, your job, your social security, and you were going to be sent to a place where um, they really didn't know you. The image of being thrust out like that, scattered, it is the same image, the same word, for soul. So when God scattered Galileans, you know what he was doing? sowing seed in the Roman Empire. And because that seed was sown, guess what? We have something to talk about 2,000 years later. Um, This helps us understand, I think, the meaning of the parable or kind of what the parable focuses on. You know what this parable is about? It's about reproduction. Reproduction spiritually. Um, It's about being a conduit of life for others, not a container. This parable isn't about those who receive things from God. It's a parable about those to and through whom things are received and flow towards others. Or to put it another way, it's not about those who receive eternal life. It's about those who channel it to others. That's what this parable is about. Jesus is talking about reproduction. He's talking not about becoming a Christian. He's talking about birthing other Christians. Who are the people to and through whom spiritual influence will be transmitted? Who are those who birth 
other believers. That's what this parable is about. And so then we look at it. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. When you hear this passage, a lot of times people would say, well, is this person a Christian or not? You know, so the word, did they believe it? And then they stopped believing it. And were they a Christian? That's not really the point. It's not what the parable is about. It's not trying to clarify who is a Christian and who is not. It's trying to clarify who will be spiritually reproductive. This person, they understood the word, but they didn't really take time to keep it. They didn't guard it. Are they going to be spiritually reproductive? No, no, they're not. That's the first soil. Somebody who they hear, but they really don't think about it. It really doesn't doesn't get down deep in them and they can't pass anything on to somebody else. That's really true, isn't it? We can't pass on to someone else something we don't grasp for ourselves. Is that reasonable? That makes sense, doesn't it? If we're going to give something to someone else, We've got to get it. But that's really what this is all about. That's why we read. That's why we talk about so that as we get stuff, it gives us the opportunity when it comes to be able to help others to know it as well. Um, There's another one. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word. And at at once they, when trouble or persecution comes, excuse me, because of the word, they quickly fall away. It's talking about those who they believe, but when pressure comes because of the word, when it leads to them experiencing things that are unwanted and uncomfortable, they say, nah, I'm out. I didn't sign up for this reason. I'll take things that are given to me if it makes me, if it makes my life better, but if it's not going to make my life better, then I'm out. And that's what this soil is about. It's, um, it's about those who have to learn if those who are spiritually reproductive will have to learn to manage pain. The road to reproduction involves distress. The road to reproduction involves distress. Ask any woman who has given birth. Reproduction is painful. The reason you do it is not so much for your benefit, but that you get to bring a life into the world. And um, the same thing with spiritual reproduction. Those who apparently beget others have the stretch marks and scars to show for it. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to orphans, orphans, excuse me, in India. Back in the 1920s, she rescued hundreds of orphan children, especially little girls that were going to be sacrificed to Hindu gods, dedicated to Hindu gods. In 1931, she prayed, God, please do with me whatever you want. Do anything that will help me to serve you better. And that same day, she fell, suffering fractures that would cripple her for the rest of her life. 
Um, while the growing children had continued freedom to enter her bedroom, she now had the quiet times that allowed her to write books, poems, and these and letters which were translated and shared around the world. Actually, it was her influence ended up growing, but she couldn't go out of the house. She wrote a poem that I'm going to share with us, Hast Thou No Scar? Hast Thou No Scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet, yet I was wounded by the archers spent, leaned me against a tree to die and rent by ravening beasts that encompassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole, can he have followed far, who has no wound or scar? Another kind of soil, still others, like seed among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Those who reproduce have to learn not to deal with pain, but with tension. Having unfulfilled desires and unmet needs, uh, the road to reproduction involves dealing with unfulfilled desires. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me, and this is another one of those very, you hear it and you say, what is, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Frankly, sometimes this verse is applied to individuals that I don't think is supposed to apply to. Frankly, I don't think this verse applies to sheep. Jesus wasn't speaking it to sheep. He was speaking it to shepherds. Those who had places of spiritual responsibility. And in Israel at the time, if you remember the house of Israel and the house of Judah, if you embraced Christ at that time, it would mean by all means that you definitely were an enemy of the government. And you would lose your land and your relationship with your, with your neighbors and family. It's not just a maybe would have happened. If you were a Galilean and you followed Christ, it was not going to go well for you. You were not going to have your best life now. And that's just the way it was. And I think that's who Jesus is speaking this parable to. It, it is applied to individuals so that if you have a worry issue, then you're not a Christian. Again, this parable is not about who's a Christian or not. It's about who is reproductive as a Christian or not. And if we're going to be reproductive, we are going to experience things that are not going to feel good. We're not going to be able to have everything we want. And again, that's not yippy skippy wonderful. It just is true. It's just the deal. 
if you look at Jesus' life and Paul's life and Moses' life, those who were very reproductive, they didn't have their best life now, did they? And again, I don't say that to try to shame anyone. I'm saying that if you're not having your best life now, and you're assuming you did something wrong? No. Those to and through whom God revealed, listen to me, those to and through whom God reveals himself understands what it means to groan. And if you're not always happy and always lively and joyful, you're saying, I must not be a very good Christian. The fact is, you're on your road to being a productive one and a reproductive one. Um, Finally says, others like seed on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 36 or even 100 times what was sown. What does it take to be one of those to and through whom God begets spiritual life? You got to hear the word. You got to hang on to it. Even when it's uncomfortable, you got to hang on to it, even though you have to let go of some things that you'd really like to have now. And then you have to continue to remain. That's what it seems to indicate. Um, You don't have to pay a price. And so as we're going to think about wrapping up, you don't have to pay a price. I don't believe I think Christianity is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. You don't have to pay a price to become a Christian. It says uh, in Isaiah, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. You don't have to pay a price to become a Christian. I think you do have to pay a price to be spiritually influential in the world, though, and to beget others. There is a cost involved in being fruitful. Um, Applications. Well, there's three of them. Number one, be thankful. We who are Gentiles have been given the free gift of eternal life. If you hear the message that Jesus died to bring the message of reconciliation, that he wants to change his relationship with us prior to Jesus coming, to be a Gentile meant that you had no stake in God at all. That's until Jesus came. And now the offer of eternal life is extended and we hearing about Christ, believing he died so that we could be members of his forever family, we're in. And we don't have to pay money. We don't have to do anything. So be thankful. Uh, That's number one. Number two, be mindful. Um, Those to and through whom this gift was given, paid a price to give it. Again, those first Galilean Christians who went into the Roman Empire, they paid a price to sow seeds to bring words that we could benefit from 2,000 years later. So let's be thankful, but be mindful of those who were put in harm's way by the Father so that they might share things that would allow us 2,000 years later to say, Jesus, you died for me. And because you did that, and I have of eternal life. Um, I've said this before. The gift of eternal life is absolutely free. Postage and handling is costly. And 
our Jewish older brothers are the ones who paid that price. We'll have plenty of time to thank him when we get there. Third, be useful. Um, We are not usable immediately. Uh, Mark is the one who writes this parable, and he's a case in point. Real quickly, I just want to show you a couple of passages. Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers at the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. He's the one that writes this. He's the one that writes the gospel of Mark. So um, Barnabas wants to take Uh, John, also called Mark, Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Here's what happened. Uh, Barnabas and Mark were related. And so when Barnabas and Paul went and did their missionary journey, they said, let's bring John Mark along. Sure. And they went to Pamphylia and John Mark says, I'm out. (laughs) <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. I think I'm going to head back home. And then, uh, then when they were going to make another trip, Barnabas said, hey, let's bring John Markalock. And Paul says, absolutely not. He bailed on us the last time. Wouldn't you imagine? He bailed. And so that kind of sealed it for him, right? Never going to be useful again. It's interesting in the last uh, letter, in the last chapter, here's what Paul said. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone Thessalonica. He was bad soil. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Domitia. Only Luke was with me. Look what he says. Get Mark and bring him with you. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Um, You know what the deal is? Usefulness grows over time. takes God six months to make a squash and decades to be an oak tree, to make an oak tree. What do you want to be? A squash for God or an oak tree? Uh, takes time to be useful. But God is really good at making people useful. Um, I'm close with this. The prayer in step seven of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I think, nails it, is what it says. And if, you, if this prayer becomes, it makes sense to you, then make it your prayer. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I ask that you now remove everything that stands in the way of my happiness. Wait wait a minute, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Everything that stands in the way of my joyfulness. I'm sorry, excuse me. (laughs) Everything that stands in the way of my holiness. Everything that stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. That's step seven. That's a good prayer. And that's sort of my encouragement. God is, God creates usefulness over time. Took Mark time. If we're not where we want to be usefully, then that's, that's, it's not a dead issue. Remain in the word. Keep making room for it. And over time, uh, if it's your desire, God's good at creating usefulness.
Let's stand for closing prayer. Thanks for stories, and thanks that we have access to them 2,000 years later. Thank you for your purposes that you inconvenience some, your firstborn, so that the news that you come to share with the world might be shared with the world. They paid a price, but so that we could know what we know. And would you continue to develop us and work in us that we might know you? We're concerned about those around us. We don't know exactly what to say, but you're the one that makes people useful. You're the farmer. We're not. Would you continue to do your work in this world? I guess more significantly, would you do your work in and through us? Give us the strength, everything we need. I want to be useful. In Jesus' name, amen.